SIBO is an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine and it stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Welcome to Allergy Proof, the podcast dedicated to helping hardworking women with health issues get through life. Hey, I'm your host, Ashley Templer, and I have more allergies and intolerances than you can count on one hand. I'm that person that BYO snacks to parties, but I'm also that person who spent thousands of dollars trying to get to the bottom of my symptoms, and I got there. From running my own social media agency, Pep Creative, and skincare brand yours only, I know a thing or two about navigating a very busy schedule with ongoing health issues. Join me as I give you my tips, interview your fave biz women and health specialists to help you solve and manage your autoimmune conditions and allergies. If you want to hear more about my story, head to yoursonly.co forward slash about, where you can also pick up some very allergy-friendly products. Hello and happy Tuesday. I have pre-recorded this episode because I am most likely lying in bed right now recovering from surgery. I finally have plan to get my deviated septum fixed because I haven't been able to breathe for a really long time. So I will most likely be in bed right now. But as I mentioned last week, I think I have mold illness, which has most likely caused my recent diagnosis with SIBO. And as I am not a specialist in this space and SIBO is bloody confusing, I thought I would get the amazing Brooke Schiller to tell you about it. So she is a degree qualified naturopath and clinical nutritionist with a passion for digestive wellness. She also currently works at Halsa Health in Surrey Hills in Sydney and Nimisico in Bondi. And her motivator is that she just gets to guide people to better health every day, which is so my jam. As a bit of a heads up, she is not my naturopath and her treatment plan for SIBO is actually quite different to mine. So if you are wanting some advice on how to treat your SIBO, I would probably just recommend finding a practitioner that you feel like works best for you and then they can tailor it based on your symptoms. So I hope you enjoy this episode and it helps you understand SIBO a little bit more and maybe even give you some answers if you have been in a similar boat to me. Enjoy. Hi, Brooke, and welcome to Allergy Proof Podcast. How are you? Hi Ash, I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime. And how is it in the sunny Sydney? Today is humid. I think it's going to storm later, but we're in that sort of moody pre-rain part, which I kind of love. Yes, me too. I kind of miss it. So I always like to start asking people what they were like growing up because I think it plays a huge part in their career, but also their personality and their lifestyle and even their own health journey. So it'd be good to start with what you were like when you were growing up. Yeah, sure. Um, I was a really happy child, um, perhaps a little shy when I was younger, but really inquisitive, loved to read, loved playing with my brother and sister. Um, We grew up on a vineyard in the Barossa Valley, so there was a lot of homegrown veggies, outdoor play, and just generally a really happy childhood. That's a dream childhood. (laughs) It was. It was a dream. I was so lucky. And I remember trying to swap homemade biscuits with my friend's roll-ups in primary school because (laughs) I was like, what is this Anzac biscuit? I want the roll-up. Um, so it's funny when you look back now and I just think, oh, so, so fortunate. Yeah. And like, no way would you want that roll up now? <laughs> no, times have changed. <laughs> that's for sure. I remember primary school probably being the most challenging element for me of childhood because I had really bad eczema. So that was a bit of a struggle. But then throughout high school, I really found my place and made great friends. And I'm still actually really close with them now. Oh, that's awesome. So 
The eczema element takes me to my next question of what your health was like as a child. So you had severe eczema. Did you work out what your triggers were? Well, we went down the whole route of no dairy and no citrus. So back in the day, that was basically Nutlex and So Good. Um, yep. <laughs> and I, for some reason, loved citrus. So I found that the hardest component of it. Um, and then loads of sorbeline cream. But Beyond that, it was hereditary in our family, like my sister had it and I think mum's side of the family had had it and mum would always say, you'll grow out of it. And thankfully, towards the end of primary school, I did. So I was quite fortunate in that regard. Yeah, very, very lucky. I recently learned that you were not a naturopath straight from school. So it would be great to hear about a bit of your journey from high school all the way up until now. Straight from high school, when I was 17, I moved to Adelaide to study a Bachelor of Commerce. And I remember at the time I really wanted to do occupational therapy. So I, I think I always knew I was meant to work in health, but at the time physics was a prerequisite for OT and I was terrible at physics. So I was great with numbers. I thought I'll do commerce. And to be honest, while at uni I didn't... I didn't love it. I just, you were just doing it, you know. I think I was too young to really understand what I was studying and what that meant in terms of a career. Um, so I did the three years at uni and then when I graduated, I got my working holiday visa and went to Europe for two years. And here I really didn't want to work in finance. So I jumped into hospitality and travelled and partied and experienced new things with my friends and yeah, just had a really amazing time. That's amazing. That's like a dream situation to be able to go to Europe and have yeah. some time off. Yeah, it was really fabulous. I, I just loved it. And um, I think I fell in love with the beach when I was over there. So when I got back, a friend and I moved to Western Australia. And this is when I got my first real job in, in finance. And I'll be honest, it was a bit of a shock to the system. I think just that office environment when, when you had never done it before. So from the get-go, I was kind of thinking of how I could make it work or what else I could do. And then that led you to your current career. It did, it did. So I was living in Perth actually and I started doing yoga and that was the first sort of inkling for me that there was a human body connection. Um, and so I got, I was quite fascinated by that and I was also really tired so I remember going to see GP after GP and um, not understanding why I was so tired but in actual fact now I look back it was because I was drinking quite a lot and eating really poorly so I'm sure that that was the contributing factors. So after a few years in Perth I moved to Sydney and the health industry is huge here like wonderfully so and I found out that naturopathy and nutrition were things that you could study. So I started studying part-time online while I was still working in finance just to dip my toe in and then loved it. So quit my job, had a little holiday to India and then came back and studied full-time. And here we are eight years later. <laughs> Amazing. That's a good little journey. And I think I said to you before we started recording that I like this story because it wasn't like you just jumped into this because you felt like you should. 
it was like you've been through the journey, you've had a few health um, concerns or you were quite tired and you did the finance and it wasn't for you and now you've, you know, leaped into something that actually you thrive off. Yeah, absolutely. I I did spend, I would say, eight years working in finance, desperately sort of thinking of what I could do that I would love and really be passionate about every day. And so stumbling across that when I came to Sydney really felt like a gift and I, I just love it. Like I, I'm constantly fascinated by the human body and I, I really love the research element and, yeah, I feel very lucky that I've sort of found something that can keep me entertained um, for my life. Definitely. So one of the reasons I really wanted to chat to you on this podcast is because, I, as you know, I was recently diagnosed with SIBO, which, as you had mentioned to me previously, it's quite common and it's a bit of a not buzz kind of term, but it's been thrown around quite a lot. And I didn't really know about it, to be honest, until I was told that I could have it. And I thought instead of me just telling the audience about it, I thought I would get someone who kind of specializes in it or treats patients that have SIBO. I'd love to chat more about that throughout this chat, but I guess it would be good just to start with like what your day-to-day life is as a naturopath and what types of clients you see and what kind of issues that they come to you with. I work in two clinic spaces. One is where I am right now, House of Health, um, based in Surrey Hills. And um, the other space is new and it's out of an infrared sauna in Bondi called Nimbus & Co. And I'm super lucky. The people I get to work with in both spaces are amazing. Um, but what I do, what I love to do most in my job is uh, working with people with digestive health. It's really my passion. I had my own digestive history um, when I started studying And so I see varying gut conditions, so chronic bloating, constipation, reflux, SIBO, inflammatory bowel conditions, the whole lot. Um, But also Hauser Health is a hormone and fertility clinic, so I do see a lot of PCOS, endometriosis, hormonal acne, you know, hormonal imbalance types of issues. So quite a broad range, but digestion is really my focus area. Yeah. And then so in terms of SIBO, as I'm not the specialist, it would be awesome to hear how you would describe it. I suppose to start with, it is as it sounds. So SIBO is an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine and it stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So we have the large intestine and we have the small intestine. And the large intestine is bacteria rich. So we have over 100 billion bacteria per mill of fluid. Whereas the small intestine, while there's debate over the exact figures, to give you an example, there should be between 1,000 to 100,000 per mill. So 100,000 compared to 100 billion is a huge variance. And so we just shouldn't have that much bacteria in the small intestine. So the issue becomes when people get an overgrowth of bacteria in that area and it can be either hydrogen or methane dominant, which refers to the type of bacteria present. Yeah, okay. And so what would you say the main symptoms are? Bloating is huge, especially sort of upper bloating for some people, Um, flatulence, 
gas-related symptoms, abdominal discomfort, increased burping, nausea and diarrhea, although some people can experience constipation if they have a methane-dominant SIBO. So they're all the gastro symptoms and they're really sort of gassy, bloaty-related. Beyond that, some people can also experience unexplained weight loss and signs of malabsorption, so iron deficiency anemia or low B12 are common examples, which is because you're not digesting things as you should be. Yeah, so I had an iron infusion last year. Ah, interesting. Which probably should have been a red flag. (laughs) At the start of last year, I had my iron checked and then maybe like five months later, I got it checked again and my doctor was like, why has it dropped so much? Yours never drops. And I was like, I'm not sure. And she was like, could it be stress? I'm like, probably. And so I had the infusion and then it stayed up. But that was obviously a clear indication that it could have been SIBO. But it's very hard to obviously diagnose. But it'd be good to kind of talk about that malabsorption element because the way that I understand it is that when you do consume certain foods or like alcohol or fermented carbs, the bacteria in your small intestine basically feeds off it too early before it gets digested. Is that correct? Yeah, that's part of it. But I I think part of the problem is that organ is no longer working to its optimum. How common would you find it these days? Because as you had said to me previously, it is something that has been thrown around a lot. Yes, absolutely. It is. It's in the limelight at present. But I think also as people become more aware of a condition, um, they're more likely to get tested for it. And so the prevalence does increase. I think the current testing methods of SIBO are a little bit imperfect, but with the worsening Western diet and more awareness of the condition, definitely it's more and more common. Yeah. And then what have you found have been the main causes? I know for me, it's been like, there's a whole list of things that it could potentially be, which I'm still trying to work through, but it would be good to hear from you because I think a lot of people could be having all of these symptoms, but not realizing that it actually could be SIBO and it could be their diet or other things that they're doing in their lifestyle. Absolutely. I think there's two main causes um, and then there's a whole other lot of little contributing factors that are also also sort of worth a mention. Um, but number one is low stomach acid. So a healthy stomach is really acidic and we need it to be acidic to kill off any offending bacteria. Um, it's basically our protective antibacterial mechanism that the body has. Um, and the most common reducer of stomach acid are proton pump inhibitors which are medications that are prescribed for reflux, and they work by lowering the stomach acid. So that's quite a problematic medication in terms of SIBO, plus a poor Western diet with no fibre because fibre helps to acidify the gastrointestinal environment. And then stress because stress can also directly reduce hydrochloric acid. And um, I think that that can ring true for quite a lot of people in in today's world especially in this world yes um and then how are you diagnosing it with your clients so I do think it's really important to take a thorough case history because so many gastrointestinal conditions sound similar like if I was to say bloating flatulence and abdominal discomfort it could be 
any of 10 varying digestive conditions. So it's asking the right questions and sort of trying to pinpoint whether the issues are happening in the higher intestine or lower down in the colon. And then in terms of testing, um, a glucose breath test is the best way that I know how to test SIBO at the moment. It's not the gold standard. The gold standard is quite an invasive test. Um, But you can get a lactulose and glucose breath test combined that I think is quite effective um, at telling you where the SIBO is present. I did that one and I was, yeah, I was very sick after having the lactulose and my um, results were like off the chart. So when you're looking at the actual chart, you can't see the top of it. It just, yeah, but I mean, I'm just so glad that the test even exists to be able to work it out because, you know, I've been through so many different tests to try and work it out and I think I've finally found it, I guess. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, people really want and need a a diagnosis um, to find some answers for their health issues and that's ultimately what people are looking for. So we are really lucky that we've got these functional tests and I just think we need to um, use the best options available and, and be considered with what the results say in regards to the person's symptoms. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of things that also come off from having SIBO. Like I do feel like since having... SIBO, it may have caused more of my intolerances, like my, you know, reaction to salicylates and amines, I feel like have significantly heightened later in my life. And then that's when the SIBO kind of symptoms started. So I'm hoping, I haven't mentioned, but you're not my naturopath. I am working with a naturopath. She is hopeful that I'll be able to reverse some of those intolerances and be able to introduce a lot more into my diet. And I have started to bring some salicylates in, which has been really good. Amazing. And I just never, never thought I'd be able to do it ever. That's so amazing. I mean, that I think that really speaks to food intolerances is that they're a sign that the digestive tract isn't working as it should. Not that you need to avoid the food forever. It's that you need to fix the underlying problem and then reintroduce. Yeah, but I think there's so much education that needs to be had to just the general patient, which is obviously me. Because, you know, I was diagnosed with like uh, like the FODMAP intolerance to all of them when I was like 23 and was just told to cut them out for the rest of my life. And I've spoken to you about this. Yes. And you've obviously said like that actually could have been a contributor to SIBO because of the way that my diet was. And it's just so hard because you just don't know who to see and who to get the information from. And everybody tells you different information, which is kind of why I'm doing this podcast so people can hear more about my story because I have told lots of people that I won't be able to eat these things forever, really, because I was told that I could start reintroducing them once I felt better, but I never felt better. So it was such a tough one for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing with FODMAPs is it's taking out any of the fermentable fibres. So all of those gas-induced signs and symptoms are going to decrease but it, it's not correcting the underlying cause. So really it's a symptomatic relief tool whilst you do the other work and then reintroduce the foods. If you just do it on its own, unfortunately, I don't think you'll, you'll get those results where you can reintroduce them again. But as said, it's super common. Like I've spoken to loads of people who have been on FODMAPs for years when in actual fact it's meant to be used for six weeks maximum. 
Yeah, which, I mean, I'm well beyond six weeks because, what, I'm 31 <laughs> now and it was 23 when I cut yeah. it out, which is a long time, but I'm working on it. So in terms of treating SIBO as a naturopath, um, and I know it depends because my naturopath treatment is quite different to yours, but every kind of practitioner has a different approach depending on the patient. Yeah. How would you say you would treat SIBO? As you touched on, it can totally vary depending on the person sitting in front of you. And also naturopaths all treat differently um, as well. So I have a big professional crush on someone called Jason Horolak, who's been studying the microbiome for over 20 years. And um, I've done a lot of his seminars on SIBO and so I take an approach based on his his teachings. Um, so first up, we need to remove any contributing factors. So if someone is on PPIs, we need to work with the GP to get the person off the PPIs. Um, other medications can also slow the digestive tract like codeine. Um, so we need to work with a GP to eliminate the need for these medications. And then our... Um, sort of tool for getting rid of bacteria that we don't want or bacteria in the wrong place is antimicrobials. So these are really amazing herbs that have active constituents that can decrease levels of bacteria, um, but they are really potent. So I would suggest always working with a naturopath at the antimicrobial stage. Um, but there's a number of herbs that could be used, so pomegranate, garlic, clove, thyme, oregano and berberine are all really great options amazing and so how long do you find it takes for someone to I would never say get over SIBO but see symptoms and gradually kind of get better yeah look I, I mean to be honest those first two phases would be the first phase and then you're looking at um working to acidify the gut, you're working to reduce stress, um, you're working to have breaks in between meals, you want to work with pre and probiotics and then correct any nutritional deficiencies, so the iron, the B12, the vitamin D. So that whole process um, absolutely varies but it, for some people it might be six months, for some people it might be longer it's a, it's a tricky one to pinpoint. It does a little bit depend on how compliant someone's willing to be and also the severity of their symptoms and whether they have other health issues going on at the same time. But I think you'd want to allow at least sort of six months from beginning to ending. Yeah, that's actually what the number that I had in my head um, because I'm, you know, doing the diet option but everyone's different and I can just tell by the steps that I'm going through that it will be a bit of a long process for me to get there. But as I've said to you, I already feel amazing so I know that there's a path. So by being on the path, I'm like, I don't care how long it takes because I know that I'm going to feel great by the end. Absolutely. That's so wonderful that you're noticing improvements. I think that's the key to remaining committed to whatever you're doing. Let's just use me as an example. In 12 months time, I've kind of gotten to the point where I've reduced my symptoms and I've introduced uh, the food chemicals and then the FODMAPs into my diet. What about life after that? Is it like, is there a chance it would come back if, you know, the stress comes back into my life and all of that kind of stuff? Is it something that your body is more prone to? Yeah, recurrence of SIBO is high, but I will put a disclaimer there because I think often it's that people 
revert back to ways they have been living or ways that they have been eating. Ultimately, I think everything that we eat, we should keep our microbiome in mind. And so if you are having loads of fibre, lots of plant variety, lots of polyphenols, which are brightly coloured berries and foods, all of that is feeding the good bacteria of the microbiome. So that can really help to keep a good environment there. If you have a good, healthy colon, you can then work with motility um, and ensure that everything's moving through as it should be. So if you, basically, long story short, if you continue on, not a protocol, but continue on with those practices that you've learned through your protocol, I think you should be able to keep the SIBO at bay. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. And then what would you say your tips are for people who think that they might have SIBO but they don't really know where to start? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think something tangible that people can do at home, um, and this might be a bit graphic for some, but it's a really good idea to do so you know what's happening with your bowels, is a bowel transit test. So basically that is eating a cob of corn and then timing from when you eat it to when you see it pass in your stool. And anywhere between 16 to 24 hours is ideal. But if you find it's longer than that, then you might have issues with the speed at which things are going through your digestive tract, which is a contributing factor to SIBO. Um, So that's something that people can do at home. Beyond that, I would suggest really researching and looking for a qualified practitioner that you resonate with because ultimately as you do with your naturopath you need to trust them and work with them um, whilst asking plenty of questions and doing your own research but I do think it's helpful to have qualified practitioner who can sort of shift through the research and the facts from the noise that we can sometimes find on Google. Yeah, and I think like you can jump from so many different practitioners to the next. And I found like I have seen previous naturopaths and they weren't right for me. And my current one is so great because I think she does research in other conditions that I have. She's called other places where I've had tests done to get clarification on my results. Like she really tried and then really explained to me and understood my work environment and tried to help me work out ways to make my stress less. Whereas I think some just slap on a thing on a piece of paper, say, just stress less. And you're like, yeah, but I need practical ways to do that because sometimes people's version of stress is different to your version of stress because, I mean, I can get stressed, but my thing is that I just have a lot on. Yes. I have two businesses and I have a podcast. So I just have a very busy day and I have staff. So there's a difference between being stressed and busy, but then it's trying to work out maybe some of the busyness is actually contributing to it too, if that makes sense. So it's finding the right practitioner that understands your lifestyle and really gets you that I think helps a lot. A hundred percent. That's such a great way to explain it because, yeah, stress often gets really labelled as the bad guy and it's this elusive thing to reduce. But without tangible tools and tricks, I think people feel a bit defeated by it. So, yeah. It is. It's about finding that person who understands your life and is willing to work with you through that. Yeah, agreed. So for my final three questions for you, my first one is any advice for anybody who has any unresolved symptoms? It could be about SIBO or it could just be about general digestive health. Yeah, I would 
again, sort of answer it in a similar fashion. I think find a practitioner you trust. I'm always one for experts. I have my own host of practitioners that I see, acupuncturists, naturopaths, etc. So I think it's really important to find an expert in the field that you trust and then commit to their protocol. Doing your own research on the way so you're up to speed and aware of what they're talking about and what's going on. Um, and then you're able to ask questions that they can clarify for you. So, yeah, find it, find someone that you trust and want to work with. Yeah, love that. And then three tips on how to manage a flare-up when you have a very busy schedule, which I know that they counteract with each other. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that people can have a busy schedule and still, you know, have tools that make them grounded. So my top three would be to meditate. I think everybody can do that even with a busy schedule and I think it's such a powerful, wonderful tool for helping to manage stress throughout the day. With SIBO, I'd really recommend not snacking between meals. Um, So that would be one as well. And then plan your meals in advance. So that is the most impossible thing to manage on the fly when you're busy and if you don't have some prep done, you you will just eat whatever is there and often that's not the right thing um, for SIBO. So plan your meals in advance, meditate and don't snack between meals. That don't snack between meals is a good one. And then so my final question is if people want to follow you, where can they find you? Yeah, so my website is balancedbbs.com and I've got a whole lot of blogs there about digestive topics, sleep topics, etc., And there's also links to both of my clinics um, on my website. So, again, that's House House of Health in Surrey Hills and Nimbus & Co. in Bondi. And then I'm on Instagram with the handle Balanced by Brooke Schiller and Facebook as the same, Balanced by Brooke Schiller. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom on your job and on SIBO. I feel like it will help a lot of people understand it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Allergy Proof. If you know someone who would benefit from listening to this podcast, please send this episode their way. I'm here to help women thrive in life with all of their health issues because I am living proof. Make sure you hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you can listen to our latest apps which go live weekly. This is a totally independent podcast, so I really do rely on subscribes, reviews, and word of mouth to spread the word. You can also find some more helpful tips on Instagram at yoursonlyco and more from me, your host, at Ashley Templar, spelt A-S-H-L-I. Catch you next time.